Welcome to the show, folks. We've been going through a synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And last time, Jesus proved his deity when he healed a nobleman's son from a distance, proving that he isn't just a prophet with healing power, but God himself in the flesh with command over the laws of physics, even from a distance. Then Jesus made his way back to home turf in Nazareth, and he spoke at a synagogue there, and he proclaimed himself to be the one prophesied about in Isaiah chapter 61. But then he told them that he already knew in advance that they wouldn't accept this, no matter what he did to prove it. So he made it known to them that he had no intentions of performing any miracles in that town. And everybody there in the synagogue, were, <laughs> they just lost it. They were livid over this, and they became a vicious mob and pushed him up to a cliff to throw him headlong down over it. But then the scriptures say that he passed through their midst and went away, whatever that means. Then he left Nazareth and made his way up to Galilee, and then he preached a sermon on the sea from Peter's fishing boat. After the sermon, he told Peter to lower his nets in for a haul, but Peter told him that they had already been fishing all night long and didn't catch anything, but nevertheless, on your word, okay, fine, we'll lower them again, see what happens. And when they did, the nets were so full that the boat almost sank, and the nets almost broke. And this was the event that finally sold it for Peter. He knew that the only way that this could have happened was if the fish themselves had jumped into the nets on purpose in compliance with an order that only God could have given to them. So this is when Peter, Andrew, James, and John, all of them were finally on board. And then they leave everything behind and follow Jesus. Then when they got to a synagogue there in Galilee, they encountered a demon-possessed man who screamed from the depths of his throat, saying, Leave us alone. What have you to do with us? Are you here to destroy us? We know who you are. You're the living Son of God. But Jesus said, Shut up. Come out of him. It did. And that's all she wrote. And because of this, everybody there got really freaked out. Because Jesus even had authority over demons. Even demons obeyed his voice. That spooked people. Then Jesus went over to Peter's house and healed his mother-in-law, who had a very bad fever, a deadly fever, in fact. But after Jesus was through with her, she immediately got up as though she had never had the fever to begin with. And then people from all over town made their way to Peter's house, and Jesus stayed there all night long, healing people of all kinds of diseases, infirmities. Many demons were cast out as well. And that's where we left off last time, folks. Let's just jump right on in there, continuing where we left off. This is the following morning... After that night-long event at Peter's house, this is reported in Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 39, and Luke chapter 4, verses 42 to 44. It says, In the morning, long before daylight, Jesus got up and went out to a deserted place, and he prayed. And Simon Peter and those who were with him pursued him eagerly to hunt him out. And they found him and said, Everybody's looking for you. And he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities and towns also. For that's why I was sent. I was sent for this purpose. So let's be on our way. Let's be going on to the neighboring country towns that I may preach there also. For that's why I came out here. So he went throughout the whole of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. And, you know, he keeps mentioning demons. Galilee was full of pagan worship, all kinds of false gods, strange rituals, all kinds of weirdness. Now, the thing about false gods is is that it invites demonic activity. It actually invites demons. It's always been that way. If a false god was nothing more than the invention of somebody's imagination, it would probably be something just to laugh about. But unfortunately, history has shown, along with the Bible, 
that demons are always ready to assume the role of a false god. Check out 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20. In that verse, Paul tries to explain to the new Corinthian Christians that they can't be Christians and followers of other gods at the same time. They were apparently trying to do that because they thought that all the other religions were just different cultures attempting to embrace the one true God. We hear that a lot today, that all religions lead to the same God, that they're just different cultures attempting in their own way to somehow reach him. And that's the way the Corinthian Christians were looking at it. So in their mind, you could be a Christian, go through the ritual of water baptism, partake of the Lord's Supper and all of that, and then turn right around and partake of some strange pagan ritual to some other God. They didn't want to offend anybody or turn them away from Christianity by being intolerant, so they went along, and they didn't worry about those gods being false because their attitude was, well, it probably points to the same God. But even if it doesn't, it's okay because what we're intending to do is to worship the one true God. But if it turns out that what they believe is a completely false God, it's harmless, then it's just a harmless fantasy because we know there's only one true God. That was the attitude. But Paul told them in his first letter to them in chapter 10, verses 20 and 21, he said, no. I am suggesting that what the pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to fellowship and be partners with diabolical spirits by eating at their feasts. You can't drink the Lord's cup and the demon's cup. You can't partake of the Lord's table and the demon's table. You can't do it. Paul's freaking out here, folks, on their behalf. He's desperately trying to tell them that it's not harmless. All the other false gods are demons. Just because the pagan followers don't know that doesn't change anything. Today's Wiccans swear that they're not worshiping Satan. They actually believe that, but they are. Just because they don't know that doesn't change anything. Our current media tries to spin the lie that Allah is just the Arabic word for God. No, it's not. Allah isn't a word, it's a name. And just because we know that there is no Allah, that doesn't mean that Satan hasn't assumed the role of Allah to all those who choose to worship him. A former Muslim named Walid Shubat suddenly realized this when he attempted to debunk the Bible, and he wound up discovering that all of the end-time prophecies in the Bible were identical to the end-time prophecies of the Quran, except for one thing. The role of good and evil was completely reversed. What the Quran called the Islamic Jesus, or the Islamic Mahdi, the Bible called the Beast, the Antichrist. That spooked him out, and he started doing some careful investigation, and he's a Christian now. I think that says a lot. There's several UFO cults out there, mainly one that worships an alien deity known as the Maitreya. They worship him. They pray to him. They have channelers who receive telepathic messages from him. And you and I would probably think, oh boy, a bunch of kooks with creative imaginations. Well, it's actually much more than that. Those channelers have recorded prophecies from their Maitreya, and they say that he's coming to rule over the planet Earth someday. Those prophecies are much like the end-time prophecies of the Quran, only the names have been changed. Instead of the Mahdi, it's the Maitreya. And the followers of this false god are convinced that he embodies all the gods that Earth has ever embraced. Allah, Gaia, Jesus, go on down the list. And everything these channelers are being told about the end times are identical to what the Bible says, with that one major exception. The roles of good and evil have been switched around. There's another UFO cult that's been worshipping an alien deity. They pray to him. They have channelers who receive telepathic messages from him. And once again, you and I would probably think, oh boy, a bunch of kooks with creative imaginations and too much time on their hands. But there's more to it than that. 
their channelers know the alien's name. He's given it to them countless times throughout the cult's history. They call him by name, Lucifer. And Lucifer tells them that Satan of the Bible and Lucifer are not one and the same as most people think. How convenient. See, if you do just a little digging into any religious belief that doesn't come from the Bible, you're going to find out a demonic attempt to deceive and derail. All of these false religions don't attempt to debunk each other. I think that's interesting. They don't have any desire to debunk each other, but they all attempt to debunk the Bible. With all due respect to George W. Bush, who believes that all the world prays to the same God. No, they don't. They either pray to the God of the Bible or to demons. So anyway, getting back to our story here, in Jesus' day, Galilee was a hub of all kinds of pagan worship. So naturally, as a result of that, demonic possession was everywhere. Matthew's report of this is in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 25. It says, He went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every weakness and infirmity among the people. So the report of him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all who were sick, those afflicted with various diseases and torments, those under the power of demons and epileptics and paralyzed people, and he healed them. And great crowds joined and accompanied him about, coming from Galilee and Decapolis, which was the district of the ten cities east of the Sea of Galilee, and Jerusalem and Judea, and from the east side of the Jordan. Now, folks, this next report concerns the healing of a man with leprosy. And it's recorded in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. It says, There came a man covered with leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face. That's Luke's report. Mark says that he fell on his knees. Matthew says that he prostrated himself before him. Leprosy was a devastating, nasty, repugnant, and almost incurable disease because of the times. Uh, It was infectious. Not too infectious, but it was infectious. It caused nerve damage, severe skin sores and lesions, and it weakened the muscles to the point where you could barely move. At the location of the lesions and the sores, the skin would turn white, and there you would feel absolutely nothing. No sensation of any kind, good or bad. It was as though that area was dead. The problem is, though, it wasn't dead. The nerves were just damaged. That's what made it so dangerous. Depending on how advanced the disease was, you wouldn't feel anything. You could step on a nail and not even know it. And those lesions would spread over the entire body and last anywhere between several weeks to several months. And in most cases, especially during the times of Jesus and beforehand, it never went away. It was incurable. Eventually, you would just sit there, rot away, and die. As a matter of fact, leprosy was so disgusting and so incurable that it was used as a symbolic idiom for sin. Remember when we talked about how the book of Leviticus, while it did apply literally to the people of Israel at the time of its writing, it also prophetically symbolized the condition of man and its cure being Jesus Christ. Leviticus calls for the sacrifice of a lamb to atone for sin. Well, thousands of years later, Jesus became the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. 
But that's just one little part of Leviticus. Once you realize that it's prophetically symbolic of the condition of man and Jesus' personal role in changing all of it, then Leviticus becomes a treasure hunt. Well, Leviticus devoted two whole chapters to leprosy and associates it with being unclean. And when you go through those two chapters, you can't help but notice the parallels between the nature of leprosy and the nature of sin, the condition that all of us are inflicted with. It could show up externally on the surface, but it wasn't confined to the surface. It went much deeper than that. It wasn't localized to just one place on the body. It might start in one place, but eventually would spread. It defiled the body first, just a little bit, but eventually to the point of disgust. And it made the senses numb. It desensitized. So what should have comforted, or what should have caused pain, wasn't sensed. It numbed the senses. It also took away your strength and eventually weakened all of the muscles to the point of making you totally immobile, imprisoning you. Eventually it led to death. And afterwards, the only thing that could be done with your clothes, your corpse, and whatever was left, was to burn it. The problem couldn't be separated, couldn't be buried, couldn't be isolated. It had to be burned. So no wonder leprosy was used to symbolize the nature of sin. Now, all three reporters, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, quote the leper imploring Jesus, saying, Lord, if you are willing... You were able to cure me and make me clean. Mark reports that Jesus was moved with compassion. And then all three reports say that he reached out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing. Be cleansed. And immediately, at that very moment, the leprosy was gone. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell nothing about this to anyone, but rather go show yourself to the priests and present the offering that Moses commanded for a testimony to your healing and as an evidence to the people. So in other words, go tell the priests first, let's do this by the book, i.e. Leviticus, let's do it by the book. And through that, then you can be an example to the people. But instead, he went out and began to talk so freely that, uh, <laughs> of course, it's kind of, you know, you can't really blame him, although he should have done what Jesus said. He began to talk so freely about it and blaze abroad the news, spreading it everywhere, that Jesus could no longer openly go into a town because great crowds kept coming together to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. So Jesus withdrew to the wilderness, the desert, and prayed. Now this next event is reported in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. Jesus is now back in Capernaum. That's Peter's hometown. Peter's secretary, Mark, reports that after some days, it was rumored about that Jesus was in the house. It's a strange way of putting it, in the house. It doesn't say whose house it was, but concerning the source, it was probably Peter's. Because that was Peter's hometown, and Mark is Peter's secretary. So it was probably Peter's house. And Mark's report goes on to say that so many people gathered there that there was no longer room for them inside as Jesus was teaching the Word. There wasn't any room or even around the door. 
But then four guys came along carrying on a stretcher, a man who was paralyzed. Matthew goes a little further and says he was prostrated by illness. They tried to carry him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they instead went up on the roof, made a hole through the tiles, and lowered him with his stretcher through the tiles into the midst, right in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven, and the penalty remitted. Now, folks, that's a very interesting response coming from Jesus concerning this. Nothing here about this guy being paralyzed. He addresses his spiritual condition first. But what's even more interesting is that what this guy did to get in front of Jesus was a credit to him as saving faith. What did he do to get him saved? What about the sinner's prayer? Did he say the sinner's prayer? That's what everybody says you have to say to get saved. Did he first acknowledge that he was a sinner? Repent of those sins? Turn his back on those sins? Commit his life to Christ? And ask Jesus to come into his heart to live with him forever? Doesn't say that he did. He might have, but there's nothing about that recorded here. What about water baptism? Nothing about that here either. And yet, Jesus says to him, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven and the penalty remitted. Why? It tells us. It says that when Jesus saw their faith, that is, their confidence in God through him, that's when he was saved. See, this guy, first of all, acknowledged that Jesus was the only one who could help him. Secondly, he's not worried about Jesus being upset with him for cutting in line, so to speak. I think that's interesting. This guy knows that if he can only get in front of him, his attitude is, I know he'll cure me. Not only is he confident that Jesus can cure him, he knows that he will. And thirdly, he did what he had to do to get to him. He didn't say, well, not today, it's too crowded. Or not today, it's just too embarrassing, too many people around. No excuses. His attitude was, I don't care what you have to do. Get me to him now. I don't care if you have to drag me up on the roof, punch a hole through it, and lower me down. I'm not letting anything or anyone stand between me and him. This paralyzed man had an attitude that we all should have about getting in front of the word. I'm getting in front of him now. I'm not letting anything stand in my way because I know that when I get there, it'll be worth everything I went through to get there. He didn't let his physical impairments get in his way. He didn't let other people get in his way. He didn't let the roof get in his way. He didn't let the opinion of others or practical procedure get in his way. Why? Because of his faith. He knew it was the Lord. Period. All these impairments, all these distractions, all these people, I'm getting in front of the Lord now. And when Jesus saw their faith, that is their confidence in God through him, he said to the paralyzed man, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven and the penalty remitted. Now, some of the scribes and Pharisees were sitting there holding a dialogue with themselves as they questioned in their hearts saying, why does this man talk like this? 
Why does this man talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins and remove penalties except God alone? But Jesus, knowing their thoughts and questionings, he answered them, said, Why do you debate this in your hearts? Now Matthew goes a little further and says that he asked, Why do you think evil and harbor malice in your hearts? He said, Which is easier, to say to a paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven and the penalty remitted? Or to say, Get up and walk. Take your mat and keep walking. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins and remit the penalty. He then said to the paralyzed man, Get up, pick up your sleeping pad, and go to your own house. And instantly the man stood up before them. He picked up what he had been lying on, and he went away to his own house, praising and thanking God all the way home. Now, folks, Jesus uses one of the prophetic titles given of himself in Daniel and Isaiah, the Son of Man. Now, some people take this verse, misconstrue it, and try to say that human beings have the authority to forgive and remit sins. And that's where you get the modern-day priesthoods and stuff like that. But that's not the case. Even the Pharisees knew that only God himself can forgive sins. Only God can do that. And they were right. The reason why Jesus does it is because he's God. He's God in human flesh. That's why when Daniel and Isaiah talk about him prophetically, seeing into the future, speaking of his second coming, they say, I saw one coming from the clouds who looked like a son of man. He looked human. And because of those prophetic verses, which were well known at the time, one of the prophetic titles for the coming Messiah was the Son of Man. Not just any son of man, but the son of man mentioned in Daniel and Isaiah. Only God can forgive and remit the penalty of sins, but anybody can verbally say it. You know, I could say it. I could tell you, I forgive you, my son. I can say to somebody, your sins are forgiven and the penalty remitted, but it's easy to say because how can anybody really tell if your sins have been forgiven or not, you know? That's why Jesus follows this with the healing he can forgive the sins because he's God. But the Pharisees didn't believe he was God, so he proved it. Jesus said to them, Which is easier, to say to a paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven and the penalty remitted, or to say, Get up and walk. Take your mat and keep walking. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins and remit the penalty, he then said to the paralyzed man, Get up, pick up your sleeping pad, and go to your own house. And instantly the man stood up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went away to his house, praising and thanking God all the way home. And everyone there was overwhelmed with astonishment. Some of them were struck with fear and awe. And they recognized God and praised him and thanked him. They said to each other, we have seen wonderful, strange incredible and unthinkable things today. We have never seen anything like this before. Now, folks, in spite of what we're reading here, unfortunately, we'll find out later that their praises and their astonishment doesn't last very long. The emotional response to what just transpired here was exciting, it was intoxicating, but it didn't produce any fruit. And that's one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why signs and miracles 
while they may be of God on the one hand, they're not God's usual way of communicating truths and bringing glory to himself because history is replete with examples of signs and miracles only producing temporary faith. Temporary faith. The guy who was healed is a different story, though. His faith was strong before he went in there. But everybody else, their faith only increased after the miracle was seen. And we'll find out later that it was a temporary faith. Their faith dwindled and produced no fruit. Now, this next report is about the very first meeting between Jesus and Matthew, the author of the first version of the Gospel. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 17, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, and Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 39. Mark reports that this happened as Jesus was walking along the seashore while the multitude of the crowd kept gathering around him as he continued teaching them. It says that he was passing by, and as he was passing by, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's office. Mark points out that he was a customs official, and Luke reports that Jesus was looking attentively at him. Looking at him attentively. It's almost as though he already knew him, right? Of course he already knew him. He planned his whole trip to the earth before he came, remember? Outside time planned every detail. This Matthew guy is that customs official with excellent shorthand abilities who's going to be the one, or at least one of the first, to publish a documented account of Jesus' entire mission that we still have today. You know, try to imagine, if you could, traveling through time. Imagine that you're a time traveler. You're an adult now. Imagine being the adult that you are now, going back into the past, say... Oh, I don't know. Ten years before you were born. And you walk along the street where the house of your grandparents is at that time. Now, they have no idea who you are because you're a time traveler. I mean, it's ten years before you were born. But you know them intimately. You know the family history. You have memories of sitting in their laps when you were a kid. You remember growing up around them. The imprint of their face is burned into your memory. But you're a time traveler who's traveled to a time in which they know nothing of you. They have no idea who you are. It's ten years before you were born. But as you're walking along past their house, one of them steps outside to go to the mailbox. And as that happens, how attentively would you be looking at them? And I only use that as an example. You know, think of Jesus in a sense... He, kind of, in a way, is a time traveler. Only he didn't come from the future. He came from outside time altogether. The past, the present, the future was all the same to him before he came. So keep that in mind whenever you come across a passage of a first meeting, like Jesus' first meeting of Peter or John. Well, right here is the beginning of Matthew's destiny being fulfilled. Jesus from outside time, now inside time finds Matthew in his tax office. And Luke reports that Jesus was looking attentively at him. And then all three reporters, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record Jesus saying to him, Be my disciple. Side with my party and follow me. And then he rose and followed him. Now that's interesting that he didn't have to think about it first. It just, I mean, he just, he just went. Probably because he had already heard about this Jesus guy. His faith was already where it needed to be. Jesus knew that. He just needed to ask him. 
be my disciples, side with my party, and follow me. You got it. Let's go. He left everything behind, quit his whole career, apparently. Luke reports that Matthew made a great banquet for him in his own house. And then Matthew, Mark, and Luke report that there was a large company of tax collectors and others who were there reclining at the table with them. Matthew and Mark point out that many of those said tax collectors were notorious sinners. I mean, we're all sinners, right? But these guys were publicly known for their sins, whatever they were. It says they were notorious sinners. And when Pharisees saw this, they grumbled at Jesus' disciples and said, Why does your master eat and drink with tax collectors and those who are preeminently sinful? But Jesus heard that and replied, It is not those who are strong and healthy who need a physician, but those who are weak and sick. I came not to call the righteous to repent, but sinners. Now go and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, when we read that, we might not notice the sarcasm here, but Jesus gave them a loaded statement because one of the most famous passages from the Old Testament was where Isaiah said of man's righteousness that to God they are as filthy rags. And that's the cleaned-up King James version of that verse. That's not the version that was known to the people of Jesus' day. The original Hebrew said used minstrel cloths. God's view of what we would consider to be our own accomplished goals of righteousness is something that is disgustingly repulsive to God and makes him sick. So this little quip of Jesus' to the Pharisees is sort of a backhanded insult towards them. I came not to call the righteous to repent, but sinners. See, he knows that they know. The label sinners actually applies to everybody. We're all sinners. But if you don't think you're a sinner, if you think you've got all the answers, if you think you know everything and you've got your act together and everything's just perfect, then you don't need me. And Jesus didn't make a defense for those he was eating and drinking with either. They were every bit as bad as the religious leaders claimed. But they did have one thing in their favor that apparently the religious leaders didn't. When God looked down on them from heaven, he didn't see used minstrel cloths. He didn't see self-righteousness. Instead, he saw weak and sick people who needed a physician. And don't forget, Jesus was invited to eat and drink with them. That's why he was there. The Pharisees didn't invite him to eat and drink with them. Jesus could have answered their accusations with that. Why do you eat and drink with them? Well, because they invited me. I'm still waiting for your invitation. And that's really what's at the heart of all this, folks. Matthew and his buddies, in spite of all their wrongdoings, in spite of their lifestyles, they weren't so short-sighted that they didn't recognize their own need of Jesus' company. The Pharisees, however, were too self-assured of themselves and too arrogant to recognize that need. So they lost that argument and did what all skilled debaters do when they lose an argument, and that's changed the subject. Then the Pharisees said to them, The disciples of John the Baptist practice fasting, and they do it often, and they offer up prayers of special petition, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But your disciples eat and drink. Mark's report here points out that John's disciples were observing a fast, meaning John the Baptist, his disciples. Of course, right now, where is John the Baptist? He's in prison. He was arrested for accusing the king of infidelity. I don't know if those were the official charges, but that's why he was arrested. John's still in prison, so his disciples are no doubt fasting and praying for him. 
But because of this same report in Matthew and Mark, we find out that the Pharisees who were presently grueling Jesus, you know, first they grumble against him for eating and drinking with tax collectors and notorious sinners. Now they're grumbling against him for eating and drinking, period. You know, why aren't they fasting like John's disciples or the Pharisees? But because of Matthew's report of this, the grumbling wasn't just coming from Pharisees, but aided with them are some of John's disciples. Some of them are there, apparently. Their master had been falsely arrested and is presently sitting in prison, so they're fasting and praying. And then they find Jesus eating and drinking and having a good time with a bunch of notoriously sinful tax collectors. So you can kind of see why they're reacting the way they are. You know, they're like, hey, you know, what are you doing hanging around this crowd? Well, I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. It's the sick who need a physician, not the healthy. Yeah, but we're fasting and praying. John's disciples are fasting and praying. The Pharisees are fasting and praying. Why aren't you? Jesus replied, Can the wedding guests mourn while the bridegroom is still with them? As long as they have the bridegroom, then they can't fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. See, Jesus is already giving them a peek ahead of what's coming. Then he told them a proverb. He said, no one puts a piece of new cloth that has not been shrunk on an old garment. For such a patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither does anyone pour new wine into old wineskins. For if he does, the new wine bursts the old skins. The wine is lost and the container is destroyed. New wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So both are preserved. Besides, no one after drinking old wine immediately desires new wine, for he says the old is just as good or better. Now, folks, the whole point of the whole Old Testament was about God's promises to Israel and looking forward to the coming of the Messiah and the redemption of humanity and the planet Earth. And the last Old Testament prophet wasn't Malachi, but John the Baptist. He was the final forerunner, pointing the way to Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus Christ is finally here. But the Pharisees had been promoting the coming of the king for so long, they didn't know what to do once he came. Another thing they were focused on was the covenant that God made to Israel through Abraham and David. A covenant is like a promise, but more like a contract. Interestingly enough, uh, sealed by blood. God has a contract with Israel through the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. And those covenants are still in place today. They haven't been completely fulfilled yet, but they're still in force. But what Jesus is telling the Pharisees here in this proverb is that he is making a brand new covenant. Not getting rid of the old covenants, not replacing the old covenants, but making a whole new covenant. And the Pharisees keep trying to confine the conditions of a whole new covenant under the conditions of the old one. And you can't do that. Jesus said, no one puts a piece of new cloth that has not been shrunk on an old garment. For such a patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither does anyone pour new wine into old wineskins. For if he does, the new wine bursts the old skins, the wine is lost, and the containers destroyed. New wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So both are preserved. Besides, no one after drinking old wine immediately desires new wine, for he says the old is just as good or better. Jesus' blood 
has already been symbolized as new wine at the wedding in Cana. His blood will be symbolized by wine again at the Last Supper. So what is this saying here? If Jesus' blood is the new wine in this proverb, then who or what are the wineskins? And what is the old wine supposed to represent? Is the old wine representative of the old covenant? The old promise made by God to Israel? That makes sense since Jesus' blood is the new covenant. So when you look at it like that, old wine equals old promise, old wineskins equals Israel, new wine equals new promise, and new wineskins equals the world. Not excluding Israel, they're not kicked out, but no longer exclusive to Israel. So with that proverb, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you are of the old covenant, which is still in force. I'm fulfilling part of it now. I will fulfill more of it as my mission here continues, and I won't let earth history end before I fulfill all of it. But now that I'm here, I'm making another covenant that's new. And it's not just for Israel, but the whole world. And this new covenant, this new wine, needs new wineskins. At least that's how this proverb is interpreted, folks, by most conservative Bible scholars. I've done a lot of research on this proverb. What they're saying makes perfect sense to me. It explains Jesus' proverb better than anything else that I can come up with. But i got to be honest with you, I can't help but feel like there's something more hidden here. There's got to be something more to this. Uh, but I haven't figured it out yet. So pray about it, do your own homework, and come to your own conclusions. Now, folks, this next reported event is recorded only by John. It's Jesus' second public appearance in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. It's been a year since his last trip to Jerusalem where he threw out the merchants and the money changers from the temple and got questioned and grueled by the religious leaders there for doing so. That was a year ago before anyone knew who he was. Things are much different now, and it's Passover. So Jesus and his disciples go to Jerusalem for the Passover festival, and what transpires there is recorded only by John in John chapter 5. And I desperately wanted to get into this today, but if I do that, I don't think we'll do it justice. So if you want to peek ahead to next week, read John chapter 5, and we'll get into it next week, folks. Until then, we're out of here. Take care.